to mighty London came an Irishman one day. As the streets are paved with gold, sure everyone was gay. Singing songs of Piccadilly, Strand and Leicester Square. Till Paddy got excited, then he shouted to them there. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way. Hello, so this is Historian Splaining. I'm Sam Biagetti, and uh, I wanted to talk about this academic hoax that came out this fall and caused something of a scandal. Some people were asking me about it, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings uh, in response to this incident, and I was trying to figure out what to say, and the other day I started recording and the program crashed and I lost the file anyway. So I figured I should start over and instead of trying to have like a single through line essay like my lectures, I should try to have a conversation about this. So I'm here this afternoon with my friend Mike. We'll just Hi. Hi. So should we just call you Mike or or do you want to be like kind of anonymous? No, I can be Mike. <laughs> I, you know. Okay. I, I enjoy making mistakes. Okay, so my friend Mike uh, is accomplished in a STEM field, Uh, and so he's one of the people I talked about a bit about this hoax, and I figured maybe I should just let him ask some questions and have like a back-and-forth conversation about this. So how do you feel about that? Uh, I feel I'm a little scared. You're a little Um, scared? Okay. But I'm going to try my best. There's a lot of technology going on right now to make this happen, but... I think it'll probably work. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of technology here. Um, Okay, so... um, So what should we say about about this hoax? You've heard about it, right? I I mean, we've we've talked about this a lot. Okay, so so how would you basically just summarize what I was talking about? Well, uh, you were frustrated with kind of both sides... Um, of the art of the of the argument as it was being presented online and by you know peop by journalists basically there are people who submitted papers and they were fraudulent papers and they were accepted to a conference um, well, to, to journals oh to journals to a bunch right. of journals right so basically it was these three guys uh helen pluckrose james Lindsay, and peter bogossian who are all kind of you know mid-level uh, humanities professors at good institutions, junior level, and they got together and created a pseudonym, Helen Wilson, and wrote 20 pseudo-academic papers under this pseudonym and started sending them out and seeing if they might be accepted and published. And before they were exposed, they were able to send out uh, 20 of them and seven of them were accepted uh, into sort of, you know, reasonable, decent, uh, well-regarded, kind of mid-level academic journals in humanities and social science, and one of them into a pretty respected journal of women's and gender studies. And six others, I believe, were rejected, and seven were still in process of evaluation, right, and might have been on the path towards publication. So if you look at their final results, a little bit more than half of them actually were accepted uh, into journals alongside, you know, 
works by pretty respected academics, right? So we've been talking about what to make of this, okay? And these hoax papers were intentionally ridiculous, right? So have you heard of some of the titles and what they were about? Yeah, like, we've talked about what some of the titles are. And... Yeah, so, so there are some fun examples. One of them is called Defining Metasexual Violence and of Objectification Through Non-Consensual Masturbation. So this is a paper arguing that when a man fantasizes sexually about a woman while masturbating, this is a form of sexual violence, and it causes affective harm to the person they're thinking about. Now, Mike, have you ever heard of affective harm or metasexual violence? I, I, no, <laughs> no, they, sounds like a lot of fun, though. So, okay, sounds like something maybe we should try, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, okay. Another one was called Our Struggle is My Struggle, and it lightly reworded passages of Mein Kampf to make them about gender uh, instead of, you know, I want to destroy the Jews. And that also was accepted into a fairly respected kind of mid-level journal. Okay, really, really exciting, right? And then another journal called Gender, Place, and Culture accepted a paper called, quote, Human Reaction to Rape Culture and Queer Performativity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon. And the paper posed the question, do dogs suffer oppression based upon perceived gender? Do you have any opinion on that? Whether do do dogs suffer oppression based on perceived gender? Oh, I I don't know. Now how about this this paper has a whole section under the heading queer performativity. Do you do do you you're you 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 have queer friends and relations, right? Yeah, I do. <laughs> like I could take a guess as to what queer performativity means. I've been Yeah. yeah. I've been, you know, exposed to some gender theory and, and, and stuff like that. But, I, I, you know, I'd have okay. to read this paper to know yeah. what they're talking about. I mean, I, th- I, I, I have a humanities degree. I like to think I have some vague idea of what queer performativity is. I like to think I sometimes engage in it. Uh, but <laughs> this paper never defined what they even meant or even described what this was. Uh, in relation to dogs in dog parks in Portland, Oregon. I don't know. Are the people queer? Are the dogs queer? Can't tell. But this one not only was accepted in gender, place, and culture, it also got an award, a special citation as one of the 12 best papers from the on gender issues uh, by this particular journal for their 25th anniversary celebration. Okay, and this is the one... Maybe not surprisingly, I don't know. This is the one that caused some alarm bells because it got this award. And people started posting on it on Reddit. And, you know, a lot of us, I'm sure, know Reddit, right, and the wonderful conversations that go on there. But people started to post, this doesn't seem like it could possibly be serious, right? And people started looking into, who's this Helen Wilson and what's her deal? Okay, and gradually this conversation developed, and then it was picked up in the Wall Street Journal. And a Wall Street Journal columnist kind of blew the whistle and said, this Helen Wilson person must be some kind of joke. Uh, And that turned out to be true, and that's how this hoax was exposed, right? So isn't that interesting that it it wasn't academics who 
kind of raised the red flag and said, there's a big problem here. It was people on the random people on the internet, right? We've seen this sort of thing before, right? Yeah, well, have we? R- remind me, have we talked about something else like this? Well, well things like Redditor's solving yeah, like solving cases. Yeah, like solving crimes or like, yeah, Reddit is a weird place. Uh, that's yeah, true. Where many, where many adventures, good and bad, happen, right? Right. But I think it's very revealing that it was people outside academics who realized that something had gone terribly off the rails here with this series of articles by Helen Wilson, right? And I think that that shows how academics are a cult, okay? That's sort of one of the main points I take from all this and that I want to get across is that the academic world is a cult, right? In Not just in the pejorative way, but in the same way that any political group or party is a cult, right? And any taste group, any fan group is a cult, right? And fraternities are cults and uh, religious groups are cults, right? People form these groups with their own weird language and their own weird beliefs, right? And you sort of have to show your membership in the cult by not questioning it, right? By buying into it and not questioning it. Okay, I I feel like you're making a lot of assertions here about cults you're <laughs> you're freaking me out you're probably freaking out your audience like okay so far what we've done is we've is we've talked about these papers we've sort of made mm-hmm. fun of them a little bit we've sort of made fun of their subject matter a little bit um or not so much the subject matter but like the phrasing and the words and maybe like the theories that they're proposing and now you're going and saying that like academia is a cult. Now yeah. I happen to ag- agree with you, <laughs> but we shouldn't just become talking heads. Like what? Can you go? Like what's my basis? Yeah, for what's this? your yeah. basis? Yeah. Well, you know, I went through history grad school through a PhD program, and uh, y- you do a lot of really strange things to go through a PhD program that struck me as basically forms of hazing, right? Uh, Things like when you do your orals exam, you're supposed to read lists of books, literally, literally 200 books uh, is, is the normal number within a space of a few months, maybe six months or less, and then do an oral exam where you're questioned about those books. Now, in order to do this, you have to burn through a book basically every three hours just to even come close to getting it done. What are you going to get from a book in just three hours? What kind of understanding and reaction are you going to get from it? Uh, you know, but to me, my mentality was, well, this is an insane thing that this group does to sort of, uh, you know, torment new members before they're allowed to enter the group. And you just have to do it and not complain about it in order for the gatekeepers to kind of let you in, right? I have no idea. If you interviewed people 10 years later, how much do they remember about those books that they kind of picked up and threw aside when studying for their orals? I don't think it could possibly be very much, right? But that's an example of the sort of rituals, the kind of rituals you have to go through. And once you've done it, nobody seems to then turn around and question it of like, why do we do that? (laughs) You know, everyone sort of goes along with it, right? And then I think publication is similar, right? Publication is like, 
you have to, to be a respected academic, you have to churn out publications. And the standards keep going up, right? In terms of how much, in terms of quantity, right? And naturally, quality suffers. People are turning out a lot of junk. Wait, wait, why, why, is, why is there pressure for there to be more quantity now? Than there was before? Yeah. You know, that's a hard question, but I know this goes partly to, like, the history of universities. You know, if we go back to uh, 200 years ago, it was not common or standard for academic professors to get work published. But that became more common in, like, the 1870s, 1880s, when people adopted this German model of academics as being like geniuses, like eccentric geniuses and researchers, right? So the research more and more came to sort of displace teaching as the point of being an academic professor, right? And so you had to publish a book and then it became you have to publish books and articles. You have to publish them with good presses. They have to get awards, right? And it's just sort of escalated over the years from the late 1800s to today. And, you know, now I, I, it's hard to say. I don't really know. I think we've kind of overproduced academics to a degree. There are a lot of them out there. And while the positions are shrinking, right, so people are eliminating whole departments, you know, German, French is just disappearing completely. Uh, people aren't getting tenure, right? So the jobs are shrinking while the number of qualified people is growing. So it's just sort of a kind of natural Darwinian struggle that you have to stand out, right? And how do you do that? By publishing more, right? Okay, By... okay. So I'm going to summarize a little bit. So there's a hazing process when you go to grad school. Like in some ways, being a graduate student is really similar to being in any group where there might be a hierarchy or there might be a process for becoming a member of that group. Um, and the pressure to publish is increasing in part because there's fewer jobs and there's more people going to grad school. But what, what does that have to do with the papers being... Right, right. Like, like it, you could imagine that it's so competitive... Uh, I don't know that like only the best people get their papers published and they're publishing like 10 papers a year and they're just like really really on it like why is the quality going down well I I think that uh, the research and publication it's it's a source of prestige right I, I mean I, I don't know all the answers but if you look at the university now, it's kind of a prestige mill, right? Why do people want to go to college and why do people want to go to particular colleges? Because they get the prestige of a degree, right? And this is why people aren't just saying, hey, let's have more colleges, but they're really struggling to get into the higher status colleges. This is why people are struggling, like they're fighting over who exactly gets into Harvard, right? And this is even being litigated right now who gets those few little seats at Harvard, rather than saying, let's just make more colleges so that everyone who's qualified gets educated, right? So the college, a college degree is the biggest class status marker in America today, right? And then advanced degrees just give you that much more status, right? And so people want that status, and how does that, how do they get it? Well, 
by saying my college or my university has these prestigious respected professors who are major people in their field right that's that's sort of the basis of the prestige right and then how do they how do those professors get that prestige by publishing right so the journals in a sense are one of the wellsprings of this kind of prestige machine you see what I'm saying? That generates the prestige to begin with, that then they can confer on scholars, that then scholars can confer on their institutions and their students, right? So it's like, it's like, it's like prestige trickle-down, right? And the, and the, the, the journals and the, and the publishing houses are like, are part, are, are the fount, right? The wellspring that's generating so much of this prestige. Okay. And so when there's so much demand for it, naturally, there's going to, someone's going to respond and give more supply, right if you start another journal another journal of history or ethnic studies or sociology or whatever then surely you're going to get submissions right probably from pretty good scholars probably from pretty respected institutions you're going to get people who need to be published and so you you've got free material literally free labor <laughs> free labor <laughs> trying to give you a product right so the journals have multiplied right and in return for the free labor, they give prestige. And I think that we're, we're, I think we're in a kind of mad spiral of just journal upon journal, article upon article, and nobody's kind of guarding, wait, what are we actually producing here, and is it of any quality? Okay, so let's go back to like the actual scandal that took place. I think one of the things that frustrates you with this scandal in some ways it well it definitely affirms what you see going on in academia mm -hmm. but you're also frustrated with the conversations that other people are happening about this scandal and that i think has to do a lot with the political intentions of the people who perpetrated it and also some of the logic that the people defending the journals are using and 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 so and so this is sticky political territory at least it's sticky political online territory right right so there's there's like a whole range of different ways you can try to interpret and make sense of what happened here i mean i think just the results that they achieved in and of themselves show that there's a serious problem right and that it's it's something that has to be examined really carefully, right? But then people have come up with these different responses. And on the one hand, the hoaxers themselves published a sort of report, almost like in this mock scientific format, like describing their methods and their results. And they published it in an online magazine called Aereo. And I'll put the link in the description so you can see it for yourself. But they put their own kind of interpretation and spin on what they did, which is that they exposed what they call grievance studies. And I'm sort of putting this in scare quotes, grievance studies, like these fields of study that usually end in studies, like ethnic studies and women's studies, that in their view are motivated by political grievance and that sort of political agenda overpowers and distorts the mission of just pursuing truth, pursuing a sort of objective truth. Okay, so this write-off kind of 
polarizes people and sets them off into different camps, right? There are plenty of people, especially in the general public, who completely agree with that already, you know, and say, oh yeah, there are sort of legitimate fields, there's like real science, there's real scholarship, it's objective, it's evidence-based, and then there's this sort of bad stuff, you know, this kind of feminist, you know, lit-critty stuff. Um, and then on the other hand, a lot of scholars, especially in humanities, kind of adopt the completely opposite view that, uh, that th there is no objective neutral truth, right? Everything is shaped by social environment, by political perspective, right? And that these three schlemiels who did this hoax are, uh, are just all wrong and that they're playing into sort of right-wing attacks on academia and they're trying to claim this sort of neutral scientific uh, position and so a lot of people have reacted by simply kind of attacking the messenger basically saying well these hoaxers their views are wrong and they uh, and so we should just ignore it right we should just dismiss it these are uh, you know and to me that's just an ad hominem right it doesn't matter who they are it doesn't matter what their agenda was the mere fact that they got these ridiculous, illogical, stupid papers published is reason enough to take this seriously, right? But if we kind of break it down, we can say, well, there is a legitimate response that I've seen some people make as well, which is worth thinking about, which is that these hoaxers didn't include a control, right? They targeted the fields that they dislike like uh, literary studies and gender studies, but they didn't target other more traditional disciplines for comparison, right? Like history, uh, psychology, and sci hard sciences, right? Um, and to be fair, it is true, if you look at the papers they sent out, three of them were sociology, and they sent them to sociology journals, and all of them were rejected. And I personally don't have a personally high opinion of sociology. I think there's a lot of pseudoscience. I don't really see it as <laughs> totally making sense as a field, which is normal for historians, right? It's ahistorical. But, you know, to give credit where credit is due, these three papers were rejected, and that suggests that maybe there is some kind of more rigorous criterion here. At least for those specific journals. Right. And any sociologist will tell you just three instances is not enough. You know, that's not enough data. We don't know, but that's what we do know from this one incident, right? And I'd say it's suggestive. Well, okay. Well, here's the frustrating thing about the argument you're giving. Uh, you're given, and you know, I, I don't have my voice out there for people to listen to, but like, I can already feel like that people are going to interpret what you're saying, and think that you will have some sort of political agenda that's in line with the people who perpetrated this hoax. And, like, that's an unfalsifiable claim that they can make, and I don't know how to convince people that you're not doing that. I'm feeling a little protective, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's unavoidable. I mean, the thing is... You know, my own personal political views are complicated. I guess if you listen through all my hours and hours of boring lectures, you might piece together some sense of what my views are, or maybe not. Some people message me and say, like, I'm surprised that you talked about the Crusades, and I really don't know what your view is. 
Um, maybe that's just because I'm really dull and dry. I don't know. But what I'm trying to say is I am open to the idea that these hoaxers are totally wrong about everything. That certainly might, that might be true. Let, let's say they are completely wrong and they're bad people. That only further underscores how were they able to do this? If they're wrong about everything and their views make no sense, it doesn't matter. Like, the, these journals have the egg on their face. They accepted these papers that were intentionally concocted to be absurd. And that any normal person, any normal human who hasn't been hazed into academia can see are dumb. And not only that, but this is not unique. Okay, for one thing, people have called this hoax SoCal Squared, so-called, because there was another one like this back in the 1990s, where a physicist wrote an intentionally ridiculous paper where he argued that space-time is a, is a patriarchal oppressive construct that should be deconstructed by like a, an alternative feminist quantum physics. And, you know, the reasoning just made no sense, but, but he got it published in a very respected journal called Social Text back in 1998. And they didn't even withdraw it. <laughs> you know, they stood by their decision to accept it because they still saw it as somehow engaging with, uh, with physics. I don't know. They had some weird convoluted justification. And if you talk to scholars who got their degrees in the 1990s, like I have a good friend who's also a U.S. historian, she said, I thought that was debunked back in, in the 90s. I thought we exposed that that sort of convoluted theory talk was empty and that it, and that it was easy to fake, right? Uh, and I thought that had gone out of fashion. And I had to explain to her, no, it's come back. I mean, if it went out of fashion a little bit, it's had a resurgence. Wait, so, so you're saying in the 90s, academics... you were prone to using a lot of jargon in their papers and then right this right. this scandal occurred in the 90s and then people stopped using jargon and they started like writing in a more vernacular way and then now it's like well getting it's, worse. it's very hard to quantify i mean i don't know for sure but i think personally if i were to guess i would say when i started grad school which was in 2008 uh that sort of uh, continental theory, sort of German and French theory, you know, your Frankfurt School, postmodernism, poststructuralism, it was around, people knew of it, people discussed Foucault. Foucault's, Foucault's a very good philosopher who has a lot of interesting, valuable things to say. I have a lot of respect for Foucault, you know, and it was discussed, but it the, the language, the sort of abstruse wording about, about discourse and social construction that doesn't sound like any normal human conversation and that is really saturated with these terms that are sort of clumsily translated from French and German, it wasn't around that much. It had sort of gone into abeyance when I started grad school. But I think in the past 10 years, it's had a resurgence. And now it's trickled down and it's it's all over the place in all kinds of publications. And more than that, it's really, I think, trickled down to undergrads undergrads now talk this way they talk about you know about identity and I, I can't even i wish i could bring the phrases to mind more readily but this this weird theory talk you know about whiteness and about performativity it's 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 sort of now become 
the standard language of kind of college-educated pseudo-intellectuals. And I think it's, it's, it's multiplied out in this, this, this endless array of multiplying journals and publications, too. Okay. But, but, to go back, but to go back to this question about a control, now, so this raises an important point to me because that's one of the defenses that people have put forward that I've seen, you know, like on Twitter, like informally. It's like, yeah, but uh, would it be any different if you tried out the same experiment with all these other more traditional fields that aren't supposedly so laden with theory, right? And uh, I think that's an open question. And I would contend, you know, I sort of went back and perused some of the article titles from the William and Mary Quarterly, which is the most respected prestigious journal, or certainly one of the most respected prestigious journals in in America, early American history, right? Which is basically my field, roughly speaking, right? And I thought, well, you know, they look like they're more comprehensible, they're more readable, they're, they don't seem off the wall illogical, right? And maybe that's just a, 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 an effect of the fact that it's very selective, right? It's a high-level journal, and it's in a pretty traditional discipline, right? But at the same time, I do think, and I've always thought since I was in grad school, that even the field of history does engage in bizarre, kind of meaningless, endless disputes about myths and concepts that I don't think really mean anything, that are just as ridiculous, but aren't as obviously ridiculous, okay? And I've talked about the Enlightenment, okay? Capitalism, you know, culture is another one. The way people use culture now, it's like anything. Everything is culture. Uh, and they sort of throw around these concepts as if they're referring to some sort of concrete, real living thing in the world right? As if the Enlightenment is like this creature that can cause people to do things. And when you really question it, you know, I just try to use a basic normal level of skepticism and say, wait a second, what do we mean by the Enlightenment? What are we talking about here? And people respond by throwing arguments at you about what the Enlightenment is and what it isn't. Are Quakers the Enlightenment or are they not, right? Is abolitionism the Enlightenment or is it not? And I just thought, it's not any of these things. This is a nonsense phrase. This is just this is just a flimsy myth that we're now arguing about, just like arguing about angels on a pinhead. Okay, so you're saying it's it's not just these, you know, like ethnic studies or gender studies that yeah, yeah. this is this is an unfair target or it's a target of convenience to a certain group of people. Who have some sort of agenda it's also history like yeah. normal history well and i suspect that the same problem in just slightly different forms is really pervasive okay and when i look at the report by the hoaxers one of the things they say that does make a lot of sense to me and resonates to me is they say well we came up with weird uh illogical arguments and then we dressed it up in sort of popular buzzwords and buzz phrases that seem to be in fashion in a given field. And we cite the right authors, okay? We put in footnotes citing the major uh, scholars in that field. And that seems to have been sufficient to get the work published. 
And to me, that really made a lot of sense because I said, yeah, that's that's more or less what everyone is constantly telling me to do when I do history, right? I, I had very good advisors in grad school, but but even they, and especially a lot of other people, would tell me, well, you have to say something about the Enlightenment. You have to say something about culture. You know, you have to th- you have to foreground these weird kind of squishy uh, quasi-theoretical terms, right? And you, you didn't talk about Laura Liebman. You didn't talk about Margaret Jacob. You didn't talk about blah, blah, you know. Uh, y- they, they would push me to have more and more historiography. And this is what uh, really was the main obstacle when I tried to get things published, right? So I've only submitted four articles for publication. I really should work on more. You know, it's one of these things I put off. But I've only sent out four, and two of them were accepted by good journals, and that was really uh, great, you know, and gratifying, and two were rejected. And so that's a fine record. I have no complaints, right? But when I look at why they were rejected, uh, or when I was told I had to work on them more before they could be accepted, it was always, you're not citing this scholar. You're not addressing this scholar. And what, what scholars, editors constantly want to see is like endless catfights among historians, right? They want to see how this historian is trashing that historian, and they want you to say how your work is completely overthrowing somebody else. Okay, so one way that you signal to other people that you're like a legitimate scholar is that you've read other scholars' work and can comment on that scholarship and engage with it like in a discourse. Like, that's more valuable than actually going out and, like, figuring out what happened in ancient Egypt. Exactly, exactly. This is this is my constant complaint, is, like, you care more about what I think about Jonathan Israel than you care about what I think about people in the 18th century and what they were doing and thinking. It, you know, it's it's almost like the actual historical events and people are like an afterthought. Instead, it's all about, you know, what did Bernard Balin say about Nicole Eustace? You know, it, it, it's, all, it's all this sort of tempest in a teapot. And I think that you're always sort of between a rock and a hard place, I find. Because on the one hand, if you really criticize another major scholar's work, then you're going to upset people, you know? And this happened to me at, at a forum where I said, well... Uh, this is where I disagree with this other scholar on Freemasonry, and we'll just call him Steve, right? Uh, and and a Harvard professor was upset and said, you can't trash Steve. Steve is such a nice person. You know, so on the one hand, you get in trouble if you actually take on respected scholars that people know and read and like, right? But on the other hand, if you're not, if you don't do that, then people say, well, what's the significance of your work? It doesn't matter. It has no historiographic freight. That's what one editor wrote to me. This article is very good, but it doesn't have enough historiographic freight. So is that just like a euphemistic way of saying you present a good argument about something that happened in the past, bravo, but you didn't cite enough sources? Yeah, and you're you're not taking part in the little uh, internal catfights. Okay, so it's like... You didn't cite enough sources of other historians talking about stuff. Right. You did a perfectly good job citing well, primary yeah, did, source documents about the argument you were trying to I make. I did archival research, 
It addressed the questions that I was trying to answer. I made an argument about the topic based on that archival research. And he said, it's good, it's well written. Um, but and, and the only objection was it doesn't have enough historiographic freight. Okay. And so on the one, you know, so, so on the other hand, you're not allowed to say, I'm doing work about the past. It isn't part of this other scholarly conversation going on among other historians. I don't care. It doesn't, it's not relevant to the questions I'm trying to answer. And so I'm just not going to get into that. That's like not allowed either. Right? You have to be taking part. I mean, this is part of where, where I think of it as you have to show you're part of the cult. And showing you're part of the cult is saying, I think that other historians matter more, in a sense, than history does. <laughs> right? I care more about these disputes and these relationships among scholars in the group than I do about the actual subject I'm trying to write about. Right? And, and that's a message I keep getting over and over again, just in different phrasing, is you, you're not allowed to not care about the cult, right? You're not allowed to not care about who's getting published and who's trashing whom in William and Mary Quarterly. Uh, you're kind of, in a sense, you're sort of dangerous. You know, they don't want, they can't let in people who don't believe in the cult. Right, because... It's all like part of the hazing process. Yeah. You know, and it's all about, you know, even if I trash Margaret Jacob, in a sense, I'm still paying her a compliment because I think she's important enough to talk about, right? Well, okay. I think some of the listeners of your podcast might feel that way about this particular episode of your podcast. It's like you're paying those people a compliment. <laughs> yeah, who, this is my compliment. <laughs> you're like, welcome, guys. <laughs> like you're welcome. You're you're probably not very good people. You target No, they're these you target they're, they're good people who I think are in a cult. You know, and wait, wait, it's I, not the worst cult. I think we're talking about what who's they? I I meant the people. Sorry. I I meant like I think people will think you're complimenting the perpetrators of this uh, oh yeah. Well, you know, look. I, I mean, I I am in the sense that yes, I think this is significant, and we need we need to discuss it. Yeah, I say good, good job, good job, guys. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care. I don't know. I don't know if you guys are racist or sexist or patriarchal or whatever. I don't know nothing about you, and I don't care. But you did something that needed to be done. It needed to be done. Okay, and I'm going to explain a little bit about why this needed to be done. Okay, so for one thing, people have known for years about all these ridiculous papers getting published. Okay, I, I called up a couple examples already. Sorry to sort of to, to sort of cut you off, uh, but people have been pointing out for years these absurd papers like like this one from 2015, the perilous whiteness of pumpkins. Okay examining the symbolic whiteness associated with pumpkins in the contemporary United States. Okay, and this one, okay, it was published in, in Geo Humanities in 2015, right? And we could just dismiss this journal, sort of turn our noses up and say, well, that's not a major journal, right? But one of the two co-authors who co-wrote this paper, whose name is on it, is the chair of the American Studies Department at UNC Chapel Hill. So even if you sneer at the journal and say it's not prestigious enough, the people writing this kind of madness often are very well-regarded and people of high standing in the academic world. 
And there's another one from that was just published this month about, okay, I'll just give you the title quickly. Childhood, Gender, Nonconformity, and Children's Past Life Memories. And this one actually argues, according to the abstract, it argues that we conclude past life memories represent a novel factor that may be associated with the development of gender nonconformity. Okay, so as far as I can see, the rest of it is behind a paywall, but as far as I can see, these people seem to be seriously suggesting that you can, ex you can explain gender expression by referring to past life memories, okay? Now, A, anyone should be able to see how nuts this is. And B, if you just use scientific Occam's razor, right, the basic principle that a simpler explanation is more likely to be true, there's no way on earth that it's simpler, the metaphysical complications of suggesting that people have past lives that they then remember, that that somehow is a, is a simple or strong explanation of gender expression. It's so crazy, and yet this stuff's being churned out, and these guys, the four authors who put their names on this paper, are all on the faculty of the UVA Medical School. These are not some schlubs at some, you know, bottom-of-the-barrel college, okay? Th these are people with serious academic positions. And so what I'm saying is people have been able to see for a long time that there's madness going on here, and it's leaking out, and the public is seeing it, right? So how do you demonstrate, how do you get through to academics that, they're, that what they're doing is nuts, and that, and that no one should take these, this kind of increasingly bizarre work seriously, right? Well, I think that what you have to do is, is you have to intentionally make stuff up that you know is wrong, and then see if it's taken seriously in the academic cult. And I think these guys showed that, yes, it, it can be. And that the criteria of judgment that's being used to judge academic work is, do you cite the right people and do you use the right language? It's not, are you making a strong argument with, with sound evidence or logic? Those are the criteria that are now getting people taken seriously in the academic world, right? And one other thing, okay, to sort of go back and look at the bigger picture. People have talked about, oh, this is about theory or about postmodernism. I think that postmodern, the sort of postmodern mentality about relativity, about truth, that's a whole other big issue. And I've talked about it some before, right, in the podcast. I don't think that it's the entirety of the problem, but I do think it's a contributing factor. I think that people who accept the postmodern argument about uh, master narratives always being mythical and distorting and truth always being relative to perspective, right? There's no direct access to some independent objective truth. I think that those are valid points, but they raise serious problems that postmodern and post-structuralist scholars don't seem to care about. And that's a really big issue. And I think that it's feeding the situation a lot, right? If that's, how, if that's the way you look at truth, then how do you criticize an absurd article? What's your basis? You know, how do you say no? Everything is just a matter of argumentation and perspective, right? And, and the only standards you, of judgment that you have are the weird rituals and conventions of your discipline. 
right? That's what gets you uh, validity, right? And so I, I think I told you before, and I think I mentioned, didn't I mention this in a previous podcast about the story with one of my professors when I was in a historiography class? And he said, well, when I read a history book, I'm not looking for truth, right? I think I mentioned that before. So, you mentioned it to me. Yeah. And, and so, you know, historiography is this class you have to take that nobody likes and nobody wants to teach it, where it's about how historians do history, right? And how you compare different methodologies of history, right? Right. That's like your podcast about, the, the, like, the myths we make, where you go right, through the ways, right. the lens that people think about right. history. So that was like my little crash course in historiography, right? So, so I mentioned this moment where I was in a class with two professors, and one of them is a pretty respected senior scholar and kind of an interesting eccentric guy. And he comes more or less from the postmodernist kind of point of view, right? I mean, it's impossible to, you can't really pin these people down. They're all complicated, right? But he kind of comes from that point of view. And he said, well, when I read a history book, I'm not looking for truth. I want to see that the author has done their homework with the sources, but I'm not looking for truth. And he said it pretty much in that exact tone of voice of like how childish it is to think that you're getting access to truth through a history book, right? Well, my response to that was, well, but if you're if you're not looking for truth, then why does it matter whether they've done their homework with the sources? That's just why not just make it up? So you're saying that's revealing of yeah. what's actually going on, which is that it's a game of status and club membership. Right. Like, and so your kind of cynical rephrasing of what he's trying to say is, I don't really care about the truth. I care about whether or not you're playing the status game that I'm also playing. Right, right. I think that that is the implication of it. He wouldn't, I think, accept that interpretation. You know, I don't, well, I don't really know what he would say. Why does it matter whether you do your homework with the sources? As far as I can see, that's just a particular way of gathering facts, right, and evaluating them and making an argument. But why even bother if you don't think that you're going to arrive at some claim that can be taken as valid and persuasive beyond your discipline, right? If if it if it if if there isn't some sort of higher order truth, right? Some sort of higher order um, validity to a claim that can persuade people in the world at large or in the general public. Then what's the point of your discipline? Then you're just people sort of going through the motions and all talking to each other in a little closed off uh, world unto itself, right? And I think that is precisely what's happening in academics, is you have people sort of hiving off into these little disciplines and sub-disciplines, each with its own weird vocabulary and its own weird obsessions. And nobody's even trying to reach out and say, well, how, what can we learn from our discipline that has some sort of claim or purchase to other people, right? To some kind of wider community. You know, how do we even justify what our discipline is doing, you know? And in a sense, history kind of gets off the hook uh, of that problem, right? 
Because it's kind of easy to point to and say, well, history is about things that happened in the past and how we ended up where we are, right? But, but you know, at some point, why does that even matter? What do you tell the student, like my cousin in New York, who had a student who said, well, I don't care about anything that happened before I was born. So just don't talk to me about that stuff. You know, history sort of doesn't have a response to that if it doesn't have if it can't say what its purpose is and what kind of truth it's getting at beyond just, well, we're people who work with archival documents <laughs> and make interpretations out of them. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I think I see what up? you're saying. It's like adding up, but um, what should what should people do then? Yeah, I, so, you know, I think that there's a lot we have to do. <laughs> you know, we have to, and I think that a lot of it starts from kind of the, the really, really hard part, which is the root of the problem, which is universities and colleges are prestige mills, and they're not really aiming that much at getting people to learn stuff. You know, we both went to prestigious universities where you can graduate really without knowing anything, without having any particular body of knowledge that you have to walk away with, right? And that sort of attitude seems to be spreading of like, well, we're not here to make sure that you know any particular facts or have any particular skills. You're just here to sort of do some work and, you know, exercise your mind or something. And then you get a degree that gives you social status, right? And that's sort of the big macro level problem, right? And I think that the practical thing we have to do to change this is say the focus of scholars has to be to teach and to make sure that there's a body of knowledge and skills and awareness that is actually verifiably getting through to the students. And that's more important than, than research and publication. Research and publication is a thing on the side that you do to show, hey, look, I'm a cool scholar and people might want to read my stuff. But it's beside the point in terms of the mission of an educational institution, which is supposed to be to educate people, right? So I think we have to, I think we should, for one thing, uh, abolish or drastically reduce these publication requirements, you know, and say, you know, if you publish a book, that's great. You know, we love it. But getting a, an academic job or tenure shouldn't hinge on that, you know, and that should allow us to do away with most of these junk journals and say, hey, guys who are spending your time editing and peer reviewing for these journals that are publishing a lot of junk, uh, go back to teaching. <laughs> you know, that's I thought that was your job. <laughs> I thought that's what professors were supposed to do was like teach stuff. Uh, so I think we should shrink down this kind of bloated publication industry and when we do publish, I think that peer review has to change. And that's a whole other kettle of fish that I haven't really talked about. So I don't know if I should get into it too much, right? But a lot of the issues that this raises is, is about the process of peer review, which is supposed to be this kind of uh, neutral, objective filter to make sure, uh, to verify that work is strong before it gets the validation of publication, right? Um, and I don't think it, 
I don't think it really works that way. You know, it's really more about managing social relationships, right? Uh, in many instances, you have reviewers who are, you know, quote-unquote experts in the field, right? So they often won't want a new scholar coming in and getting stuff published and, and getting into their turf, right? Sometimes uh, they'll insist, well, if you want this article published, you have to cite me, right? And I've been told that this kind of problem of, of peer review mainly functioning as a way to make sure that the peer reviewer's work gets cited. That, that actually happens? Oh, yeah. Well, it happens in humanities, and I've been told that it happens also in the medical field. You know, I have friends who are doctors, right, who say the same thing of like, oh, you want your study published in, you know, New England Journal of Medicine? The peer reviewer is going to say, well, you didn't cite my study first, right? Oh. oh. So this sort of thing happens. So a lot of it is really about controlling turf, right, making sure the right people's uh, – uh, you know, the right people get tickled and flattered, right? Okay, so Mike, you're you're in a STEM field, right? You're sort of a scientist. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> your, your job title is scientist in the name, right? My job title is software engineer. Software engineer, all right. Which but, already makes me cringe. But you got a degree in data science, right? I, I actually got a degree in computer science, computer but my science. research okay. was what they call data science or machine learning. Okay, well, and you got your master's at a very respected institution, which we will not be named, I suppose. Or maybe we will. I don't know. Name it if you want. But you got a master's, and you told me that your advisors really pressured you to uh, pursue a research question that you didn't think made sense or was logically uh, yeah. valid. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my experience of grad school, and I think a lot of people's, and I think the point of it is you, whatever subject you choose to study you learn a bunch of information about that subject and a lot of models that people use to understand that subject. And then you try to expand on that information or try to uncover new things about the world using those models that you learned. And I had this experience where my professor wanted me to do some research that contradicted the premises underlying the models that we were supposed to be using and okay not, yeah so without we, we we maybe can't get into the technical details just now but no, that would be really boring but it struck you as a a misuse of the technology that, as you had been taught that it worked yeah I, I it was a misuse of the technology but like it was more of a misuse of logic mm -hmm. and like it was trying to force i don't know trying to force something to happen that isn't possible in order to look good right when you explained it to me i thought of it as it sounded like trying to shoot people with a spoon yeah. it's like you're using the wrong and it's tool. like hey you know why don't we try shooting people with a spoon if we then publish a paper that shows that we were able to do it then like whoa like that'll be amazing like nature will publish us maybe like we'll get funding from the defense department because like right. spoons are now new weapons so you were told as you were working on this project you were told to make articles out of it and send them out for publication right 
Uh, yeah, well, I was told to research this stuff for my thesis, and yeah, and hopefully it would lead to publication. Okay, and you did send things out for publication, not necessarily on that exact problem. Right. Okay. Uh, but there's, there is a constant pressure to publish, right? Yeah, and there's a constant pressure to publish, and, and, and in addition to that, there's also, like, th this is not uncommon— like you will hear professors mock other professors not in the same department not in the same school that they go to but like they'll like criticize other labs from other universities and say that they put out bad papers and mm. say that like oh like they're just you know whatever they know all the political tricks to get published and like uh, okay like this is common or like one way that like that people show that you know posture to other academics that they like know what they're doing is that they'll say like oh yeah i read that paper it was totally crap and like here's all the things that 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 were wrong with it that's fine it's like fine to be critical and i can understand how people's egos are boosted by like putting down other people sometimes that's warranted but like it's like so common that it kind of begs the question like maybe a lot of the papers really are crap like maybe it's Maybe it's actually more about posturing than it is about actually doing science. Okay, and it sounds like it's one of these crimes that everyone else is always guilty of, but not yeah. me, right? Okay. And then, and then a lot of it is also just the anonymity allows the reviewers to make all kinds of criticisms that make no sense without repercussion, right? And I've, I've had this experience where one of my... I submitted one paper to a good journal. It was sent to a peer reviewer. I don't know who it was, but I can guess who it probably was. You know, it was someone who works in that same field, right? And they wrote back this slew of criticisms, most of which were just factually wrong. Either they were things I hadn't said, right? They were putting words in my mouth, or they were making assertions that I knew were factually wrong. And one of them was about, was not about the topic of Freemasonry. It was about Judaism. So I won't get deep into the details, but basically I had a document about Freemasonry and it talked about the resurrection, right? And I said, the author of this document is anonymous, but it was probably a Jewish colonist, right? Uh, based on the name of the lodge and the date and so on. I said, it's probably a Jewish colonist. And then this peer reviewer said, no, that's wrong. It can't be a Jewish colonist because Jews don't believe in the resurrection, well, that's false, okay? The final point of Maimonides' 13 points of faith is God will resurrect the dead. And this is a core accepted doctrine of traditional Judaism for at least the past five, six hundred years. You know, you won't hear it talked about a lot in a reform synagogue, but it is a core Jewish teaching. Um, so this guy was, this individual who I don't know, right? Uh, <laughs> was making this objection on a tiny little point in my article that they were actually wrong about. What do they know about traditional Judaism? Clearly not a lot, you know? So it's your theory that this reviewer was looking for things to criticize in your paper because you didn't cite them enough or because their argument... I I, well, know. I think they just wanted to because... They're wary of a new person coming into the field, right? And if they can stop that from happening, they will. So it's a so it's like a territorial. Threat. It's a territorial thing. Yeah. So I'm kind of hearing that like 
academia, like, all of this is, like, academia is no different from any other type of work or any other type of social, uh, like, a social group dynamic. Like, it, it has all the same characteristics. It's, it's not right, special. Right, it has all the same manias, yeah. It's not, like, holy. Right, right. Like, but what it does have is a certain amount of status. Uh-huh. And, you know, and... And, and now, jobs that pay money. Right. Well, and now I think it has increasingly intense competition over shrinking resources, at least in the humanities fields, right? So I think these manias are kind of intensified of like, I have to stand out. I have to take on other people. I have to fight off competitors. Uh, I have to excel because positions are disappearing, right? And so and so the sort of madness increases, right? And And I, so I think that, we have to reprioritize, right? What is the point of academics? What are we trying to accomplish, right? And is it about education or is it not? And also we have to bring in fresh air. You know, so this is one of the first things I thought of when I read about this hoax is, oh my God, we have to, uh, instead of sending articles to people within the field for peer review, which can just further amplify the madness of the field, right? We have to have outsiders, not only from outside the field, but non-academics. We have to have normal humans, okay, who may have their own biases and prejudices, right, which is true, who, who may, and who may not have the special knowledge of the field, right, but who are just reasonably intelligent, well-informed people to read these articles and vet them as well. If you're going to bother to go through this process of reviewing before you publish, you should talk to someone who isn't in the cult, right? You need a reality check. You need someone to be able to say, guys, it doesn't matter if pumpkins are white. Like, maybe they are in some weird symbolic way, but like, who cares? This is trivial. Or like, no, past life memories, no. That does not belong in a scientific journal. Like, this is stupid. No, you know we need the re- we need the outsider reality check is what I'm saying. Okay, so like citizen oversight. Yeah, yeah, and I was told that in the medical field, this is normal when you're doing an ethics review of like should you be allowed to do this study or this experiment. You're supposed to have like outsider civilians on the committee, right? And you know, and it's true. Like, okay, they're not going to know the field, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe when you write an article in a field, you should write it with the kind of clarity and accessibility that people could pick up that magazine who aren't in the field and understand what you're saying. You know, so so that's one of my main, just practical and uh, feasible recommendations is bring in outsiders into the, this review process. And bring it into how you evaluate scholars in all aspects, you know, in book publishing and and teaching, right? Why not have some rando come into your class that you're teaching, at least in a field like history? I think a rando off the street should be able to come into your class and hear your lecture and see your lesson and be able to learn something. And if they can't, then you're doing a a bad job. Bold claims made by Sam Biagetti this hour. I guess so. I guess so. And I think that this goes to this goes to this whole question of like what are the criteria, right? The problem 
the the problem the hoaxers exposed is not our standards are too low they showed that we're using the wrong standards and the wrong criteria and that we have to strive for some sort of criteria of judgment that people will find valid and convincing outside just your discipline does it does that kind of tie all this stuff together i hope so yeah i think so i think so okay okay oh oh and just a last a last uh when i was talking about cults okay i thought of um Leah Leah Remini or Remini, whatever her name is, talking about Scientology, right? And how, how she was introduced to uh, the evil galactic overlord Xenu. That this is like once you've gone through a certain series of levels, um, that's when they tell you about sort of the evil space emperor who like blasted a bunch of ghosts into a volcano. And this is why you have to like free yourself of Thetans. And she realized like, oh... They're making it deliberately crazy. They're making it deliberately absurd in order to test you. Because if, if you go through all these levels and you learn the weird, crazy mythology, then you're allowed into the cult. You're like a true believer, right? So they test you and force you to wrap your mind around something that you can tell is nuts. And I think that's partly what's happening here. You know, in, I think that's what happens like in all cults. Okay, Scientologists, please don't stalk me. Okay, but that's just yeah. What's gonna I, have to be. As soon as you said the <laughs> S word, I, I I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna uh, get it. I'm gonna get doxxed and yep. all of the above. Yeah. Okay. It's all right. You know, it's life. Um, but academics is a cult, right? And you have to believe crazy stuff. And I talked about orals. Oh, and just one one last story from my own experience that I have to share, that I think encapsulates what I'm talking about here is. Um, I worked on Freemasonry, and scholars very often have associated Freemasonry with the Enlightenment, right? And sort of one of the great authoritative books about Masonry in the 18th century is called Living the Enlightenment, right? Well, in my dissertation, as I was writing, I realized I don't know if this is the Enlightenment or not, and I don't care. You can define the Enlightenment arbitrarily however you want. You can throw it into the grab bag or not. It's just a myth that people use. It doesn't matter, right? And so I wrote that in my dissertation in a very polite form. I said, the Enlightenment is not a clearly bounded historical phenomenon. It's up to the reader. It's up to the choice of the reader whether you consider this the Enlightenment or not, right? And my dissertation supervisor, who's a very good scholar, very nice man, said, I think you should take that out. There are readers who won't like that. And I thought about it, and I said, no. It's true. I think it's true. It's what I think. I think it's justified. And I put it in a polite diplomatic way. So I left it in. And I gave it to my committee. And of course, one of the people on my committee, who's a very good scholar, very nice man, is a scholar of the French Enlightenment. And he picked out that passage. (laughs) And he said, he objected to my understanding of the Enlightenment. He said, your view of the Enlightenment is too narrow. You need to widen the scope. And I said, I don't have any conception of the Enlightenment. I'm not committed to any view of it. I think you can draw it more widely or more narrowly. I don't think it matters to the questions that I'm trying to answer, right? And I thought that was a reasonably nice way to put it, of I just don't think it matters, right? So he did not like that response. 
And I know he really didn't like that response because I left the room to let them discuss. And then they brought me back in, said, okay, we've made a decision, come back in. I came back in. He and my dissertation supervisor were still arguing with each other. And they t- and one of them, one another member of the committee said, congratulations, you have your PhD. And I was very happy, thank you. And the Enlightenment scholar still refused to look at me or shake my hand. <laughs> okay, I don't know if he has some kind of continuing grudge against me or if he was just so absorbed in this argument that he like couldn't tear himself away, but it clearly really personally upset him. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about, about you have to believe in the myths. Right? So it's like he had to believe in the enlightenment and that it was an important question what you consider is the enlightenment and is not and it would be totally a bad idea to question whether or not the enlightenment is a useful concept right right and and i think that what happened is that i still got my phd anyway and this guy's a very nice guy and we've spoken since then uh so you know i don't know maybe it didn't help me get an academic job you know maybe it didn't help me get a letter from this guy i don't know i don't really care okay it's fine it doesn't really matter but it's fine it's i'm totally fine it's totally fine i don't really care i don't don't really care (laughs) i don't care at all but i think this situation that that encapsulates is so pervasive right of like you have to show you believe in the cult and its mythology in order to be let in and i think Again, we just we need fresh air. We need outside perspectives here. We need, or at the very least, we need other cults to come into our cult and kind of break some of these spells, right? And I guess that's part of what I'm trying to do, right? In historian explaining, is like, hey, let's stop and actually look at these weird mythical stories we tell ourselves and how they shape what we think of as history. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I think we got okay, it. Sam. Okay, okay, I guess we got it. Okay, thanks. You're a very good interviewer. You're a very good uh, interviewer. You're, you're okay, too kind. Thanks, everyone. Please go to Patreon. Uh, also, under Historian Explaining, the link will be in the description. Email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. Thank you.